I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to another episode of the Current Podcast. Aryeh, why don't you tell everyone listening a little bit about what's coming up? Well, we find ourselves in the middle of Chodesh Elul, the month of Elul, um, and obviously traditionally in the run-up to the Yom Narayim, we are already thinking about um, the year that has been, our lives, our futures, and our actions. And with that in mind, we decided to explore today in this episode the modern orthodox approach to Musa, to personal development um, and ethics and virtue building. And we spoke to Rabbi David Silverstein of Yeshiva Oraita, and also author of the book Jewish Law as a Journey, and also to Rabbanit Shana Goldberg, who is Mashkicha Ruchanit at Migdalos. So without further ado, let's get going. We're delighted to be joined by Rabbi David Silverstein. Rabbi Silverstein is the assistant Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshivat Oraita, located in the old city of Jerusalem, and previously served as the director of the overseas program at Yeshivat Hezda Petach Tikva. Rabbi Silverstein is also the author of Jewish Law as a Journey, published by Menorah Books last year. Rabbi Silverstein, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Um, so let's get started. Uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, Musa and the Musa movement uh, as it relates to modern orthodoxy. Just to get the conversation started, uh, I think it would be very helpful if we could sort of frame uh, or define some of the terminology. Uh, first of all, what is Musa um, and how did it develop? Okay. Um, look, I think the term Musa is broad. Um, obviously, historically, it originates in 19th century in Europe. Uh, Rabbi Shoshalanter is the founder of the Musser movement. And there are different iterations of Musser from his time, 19th century, until today. Um, but I think the core instinct um, that motivates much of Musser theology is basically an idea that uh, the Torah is supposed to make us better people. And therefore, oftentimes throughout history, uh, there have been great scholars, rabbis, different personalities who said, let's take a step back for a second and ask ourselves the fundamental religious question, which is, wait a second, are our religious lives really being enhanced in a meaningful way by our commitment to religious observance, to Torah study? And I think that, you know, the Musa impulse in many ways is a check on the system, right? It asks us, the practitioner, to deal with the tough questions, right? What is the purpose of halachic living, right? How much is halacha really making us more refined? And uh, through that experience, we not only develop a more sort of evolved religious consciousness, but actually our experience of halacha in general is that much more, uh, is sort of that much more um, enhanced. And what would you say, um, if we were sort of trying to still set out the terms, what would you say is the difference between Musa and ethics? 
Well, again, again, it's tough to sort of really concretize sort of the, the nuances here, because again, I assume some people would assume that most are synonymous with ethics. Some people, some people would say they're very separate. But I think that at, at its core, right, in other words, there is overlap between the idea of Muster and the idea of ethics, right? And both assume that we want to become better people, right? Again, Muster may have sort of different expressions of how you get there, but the core principle assumes that we want to become, again, more refined through our religious practice. That may make us more ethical, that may make us sort of more um, inclined towards life of virtue. When push comes to shove, you want to assume that when you leave the Beit Midrash, when you leave a life of deep halachic commitment, right, you want to sort of assume that the person who sort of went into that experiment comes out altered, right? And not altered in the abstract, but altered in a really fundamental way, in the sense that he has become more godly. And therefore, I think that, you know, people can quibble about the difference between ethics and Musser, but I think there's enough similarity to assume that both of them think that by engaging in the discipline of ethical practices, Musser theology, right, we will actually become better people as a result. Um, so I know that your sort of general outlook differs or is slightly sort of uh, more updated than, than traditional uh, models, um, but in a traditional sense, how is Musa learnt or taught compared to, say, Gemara or Halakha? Well, again, you know, there's different schools of Musa thought, right? So, like, for example, you know, there's a school of, of thought called the Navardic Yeshiva, right, which assumed that was based on the theology of, like, the lowliness of man, right, that man is nothing, right? And sort of the flip side of that, right, was a model which is advocated uh, not by Navardic but by Slobodka, right, which assumed that, you know, man was not lowly, but man was great. So they had all these different sort of ways to practice Musser during that time, right, in, uh, in Jewish history. But um, again, the working assumption of the Musser practice is that you're really trying to sort of concretize uh, better ethical refinement. Because when it comes to, let's say, for example, Gemar and Halacha, so historically it's been assumed that Gemar and Halacha, right, it's primarily about content. Right? It's primarily about mastery of the sugya, about becoming more familiar with the mechanics of halachic living. And that the study itself is not as frontally, so to speak, spiritual or ethical to the point where, you know, a person may leave a Musser Seder and really feel like he sort of is changed in a meaningful way in terms of ethical refinement, whereas a person learns, for example, the laws of Borer, right? So he may be intellectually stimulated, he may be sort of historically curious, but he doesn't necessarily feel a sense that learning the laws of Borer, right, definitionally, right, made him somebody he wasn't prior. And then in terms of how that's, I guess, played out, let's say, in Yeshivot, why do you think that Musa has sort of become, played this key role in the Seder Yom of, of so many Yeshiva? Well, again, I, I think that, again, all Yeshivot are struggling with the same question. Really, the, the struggle is not new, right? In other words, Rabbi Sosalantar, when he sort of you know, formulates Musa theology, is not creating something revolutionary. Again, the practice may, be, may have been sort of historically unique, but the core principle is very traditional. I think that contemporary yeshivot, right, are all struggling with the same question, which is you want the student to sort of leave the experience of yeshiva, right, some, some, as somebody different than he was prior. And I think sometimes people feel like, you know, learning Gemara, learning halacha are critical. And obviously nobody's talking about a total reorientation of the curriculum. But I think Musser is less about sort of the specifics and more about a vocabulary. And I think that many Shibot feel that it's really critical to incorporate this Musa vocabulary because it will go a long way in terms of making the students not only sort of better people, but better Jews, right? The hope would be is that people who invest in the spiritual exercise of Musa will be more committed, not only to Jewish life writ large, but to the specifics of halachic living. So I suppose this is where we move 
sort of more specifically into to your outlook um and i know that the the underlying concept of of your book jewish law as a journey um is sort of showing the interplay between halacha and musa so you mentioned before that the goal of observant judaism is to sort of make a person more virtuous so how, what how what does that interplay look like how does living a halachic life or an observant life or make a person more uh, attuned to this musa vocabulary right so again, you know, the model that I'm talking about is not the only model within the traditional canon. I mean, there certainly are other voices than the one I'm advocating, right? The one I'm sort of describing is very much articulated by the Rambam, which is where the Rambam assumes, you know, the Rambam is a strong advocate for the world of Tameh Mitzvot. The Rambam thinks that sort of Mitzvot by their nature are functional. They're supposed to make a difference in the world. So, you know, the message that I was trying to convey in the book is that, you know, there are all these sort of spiritual and ethical and religious uh, virtues that underlie halachic observance. And the assumption is that if you're not aware of these virtues, so how are you possibly gonna be impacted uh, by the mitzvot themselves, right? It's not magic, right? In other words, there has to be an element of intellectual and spiritual awareness of the virtues to become one with the virtues themselves. I'll give you an example, you know, I think one of the most significant challenges in contemporary religious life is a challenge of prayer, right? Prayer is not an easy thing, even for deeply devout Jews, right? And there's sort of a philosophical question, which is, wait a second, how does prayer work? Meaning, what is the mechanism, right, for prayer, for let's say, for example, a petition to be um, granted access by God? And one of the solutions to this problem was offered by Rabbi Yosef Albo, where he said that when you make a request to God, right, it's not that, you know, God sort of receives new information. It's rather that you become changed, right, through the experience of prayer. And through that change, you become someone different. And hopefully that new person is deserved of the request that you initially gave. Now, how exactly does that work? So I try and show again in the book is that the, the prayer book, the Siddur in general, is a classical work of Jewish theology. And let's say, for example, the Shemona Esrei, if you really take prayer seriously, not just simply as a checklist, you have to adopt it, right? as a real exercise in personal better, betterment, then you become one with the virtues of the Shemona Esrei. I mean, just think about the examples. They're fairly obvious, right? Knowledge holiness, righteousness, right? Getting rid of evil, right? All, all of these virtues become part of your consciousness. And then by extension, you live out, right? Those virtues, those variables throughout the day. Um, I mean, you mentioned the Amida in terms of finding virtues in there. And I think for a lot of people, especially depending on what Siddur you're using, often it will almost say in the margins, you know, this bracha is, like you said, knowledge and this bracha is, you know, thank, you know being thankful for things. But are there, can right. you give us some other examples of maybe, uh, I don't know if mundane is the right word, but kind of day-to-day halacha that we don't necessarily associate with virtue building that you would say actually we can find like great virtue or sort of ethical value within them. For sure. I mean, again, I, I would answer the question sort of on two levels. I think first of all, um, you, know, you know, oftentimes, and I think your question sort of assumes this, is that there's sort of this clear, there's this gap or there's a dissonance between sort of ritual life an ethical life, right? And there's a sense that, you know, you're engaged in your day, putting on your tefillin, saying your brachot, right? Going through all the rituals that you're invested in, you're like, well, wait a second, where's the ethical betterment, right? And again, that's a fair question. And I, and, but I think there's another element here, which is to sort of shift the language and say, wait a second, it's not that ethical living is only a byproduct of ritual expression, but actually ethical living isn't of itself a ritual. I'll give you an example. The Rambam says, there's a mitzvah called the halachta bidracha, right? There's a mitzvah to sort of emulate God. 
So what, what does that mean to emulate God? So there's a lot of discussion in the classical literature as to what exactly this means. But if you look, for example, in the Gemara, the Gemara says that to emulate God means to, for example, visit the sick, to clothe the naked. So here you have the Rambam codifying a principle, talking about the mitzvah of a halacha b'jachav. The Gemara talks about what exactly does that mean. The Gemara says, you know what that means? To engage in the mitzvah of a halacha means to act ethically. And therefore, I think what I want to argue in the book, I make this point in one of the chapters, is that it's important not only to think about virtue through the mundane aspects of sort of halachic life. I don't mean mundane negatively. I'm saying the routine of halachic life. But actually to realize that acting in an ethical way is also a mitzvah. Right? And I think that sort of shift of consciousness allows you to realize, you know what, it's true you can experience ethical refinement through traditional ritual, but acting ethically in a certain sense is also a ritual. Right? And then when you sort of experience life that way, you realize all the opportunities that you have in the context of a day to find meaning. You know, I have this discussion oftentimes with my students. They'll go to college and they'll, go, they'll leave yeshiva and they'll say, wait a second, how are they going to sort of maintain the spiritual intensity of yeshiva in a collegiate space? Again, that question also assumes that, again, the way you experience virtue is by being in yeshiva, by studying Torah, which is certainly true. But I point out to them that, again, just acting in a way, right, which reflects ethical refinement is also a mitzvah, right? And when you use that language to talk about ethics, you sort of neutralize this dissonance between the ritual and the ethical. You mentioned earlier the um, sort of a, a, a perhaps a more recent shift in the way that we study Musa is to uh sort of find the ethics or find the musa uh in everything that we're learning or everything that we're doing um so do you think that, that there's a need to study musa uh on its own or does knowledge and engagement of halacha and of tanakh uh, or of gemara by default sort of give us the same messages and the same lessons that we'd learn by learning the traditional musa books and safari well, again, the model that I was advocating before is an integrated model, right? And the reason why I think that's important is because imagine, for example, a, a yeshiva day or a seminary day where you're studying Torah for you know, 10, 12 hours a day and 11 hours are dedicated to the classics of you know, the Jewish canon, Gemara, Tanakh, etc. And half an hour is dedicated to Muslim. Right? So it's obvious to the students sort of where the priority lies. Okay? Whereas my argument is, is that it's not enough to have that half an hour, right? Because again, Muslim is not just about right, the 30 minutes of time you study. It's about an orientation. And therefore, it has to be integrated. And to sort of corroborate this idea, you know, the Rambam talks about that the Torah describes itself, right, when it describes its own chukim. It says that non-Jews will look at that, and they'll say, wow, the Jewish people who are inv invested in this whole ritual experience, they're an am chacham v'navon, right? They're a wise and discerning people, okay? So how's that going to happen? Right? How's that going to happen practically? What does that even mean? So the way the Rambam seems to sort of address this question, he says, you know what? You know, if somebody really understands the virtues of the law, right, and then sort of becomes one with these virtues, can articulate these virtues, people will say, wow, these people who engage in these sort of rituals are really wise, really becoming better as a result. So I think that the attempt to integrate, you know, for example, um, you know, type ethical teachings into the traditional yeshiva curriculum would sort of be an attempt to sort of revive this model. It assumes that people studying Gemara, people studying Halakha would say, you know what? This experience of study, right, is something which is really transformative. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not naive. I teach Gemara, you know, I'm invested in, in the details of, you know, the Sagyod. And when you're learning, for example, you know, the, let's say, uh, entire Perak and Shas, I'm not naive. Every single Sugi is not going to be grounds for existential reflection. That's not my suggestion. 
But my point here is basically that, again, as a language, right, in terms of talking about what we're trying to accomplish, I think it's important that the Musser language become part of our vocabulary, irrespective of whether studying a classical Musser work or whether studying, for example, Hilchot Shabbat. How that's integrated and how that's done, I think it's still being worked out. I think as an orientation, it's very important. I think one of the things that we notice, um, I guess, being in, in, in the world that we're in, um, is that in terms of the, from the modern Orthodox community, um, you know, as an ex- as an example of, sort of how Musa is perceived. So we, we don't see that many Sfarim, Musa Sfarim coming out from the modern Orthodox community more. There's a focus on Halakha, Makshava, um, or philosophy on Tanakh. Um, w- w- would you say that um, sort of this integrative approach uh, that you mentioned is is sort of what the is the modern orthodox approach, and so there's no need to have um, separate svarim, or would you know would you say there's a different way of characterizing what the modern orthodox approach to Musa would, yeah, would be? Well, I'm definitely not a spokesman from you know I'm not the spokesman for modern orthodoxy, right? So I, I'm going to make that that caveat very clear, right? I assume that there are many modern orthodox educators, both in Israel and in diaspora who would disagree with me completely. And I totally respect that. In other words, the model I'm advocating is not the only model. There are a lot of different approaches within you know, normative Judaism. The model I'm approaching is one that I think is, you know, honest, authentic, and I think educationally sound. But again, there are other models. But I think the question you're raising is, is a real one, which is, wait a second, there's so many books. I mean, there's so many books being published on details of halakha, on Gemara, you know, and now especially on Chumash. And like, where are all the books that are being published about Tommy and Mitzvot, about you know, personal growth, about ethical betterment. Right? What does that say about you know, our own identity? And again, I, I assume there are a lot of reasons for this. And keep in mind, this is not unique to the modern Orthodox community. I mean, even if you look, for example, in the more traditional communities, the Shivish communities, the Hasidic communities, I assume it's basically the same thing, same phenomenon. That again, if you sort of did a count, right, you would see that the overwhelming majority of books being published are about, you know, most about halacha, gemara, et cetera, and there's a small fraction being published about personal growth. And I think the core question beyond the historical and sort of sociological question about why that is the case, I think the core question is like, is this something that we're happy with? Meaning, is this a model that we're content with, right? Are we willing to say, this is the model that we've done up until now, and this is the model we want to continue working with? Or are we willing to say, you know what, maybe we're missing something here. Maybe we're missing something by sort of not focusing sufficiently right, on the language of ethics. And my argument is basically we are missing something, right? And that the model we've been using is a great model. It's a very effective model. But I think that, again, you do lose something as a result. So in what way is the, is the study of Musa, uh, certainly in the way that you're advocating, uh, a modern Torah invention uh, or innovation? Um, and in what ways has it sort of, it's always been the case? And, you know, was there a shift away from it and now we're shifting back? Or is is the way that we're sort of studying now and the way you're advocating is that like the, the, the new wave, as it were? Well, yeah, the way I like to think about it, again, I don't think I'm arguing for anything that innovative. In other words, I'm not talking about like a revolution to the curriculum or sort of like, you know, abandoning Babakama for like, you know, classical works of Musa, right? That's not my argument at all. I'm arguing for just like a general language that we should be using when thinking about mitzvot and thinking about our religious life. Now, I think that language has always been there, meaning even if you learn, for example, the Gemara, so the Gemara obviously has both the halachic sections and the agadic sections. Now, again, how you integrate those two things is a complicated question. Nonetheless, the idea has always been the same, which is that there's sort of the halacha and the meta-halacha, meaning there's the elements of the mechanics, the what's, and there's the larger why questions. And I think those have always been there. Right. I think historically, for a lot of reasons, sort of over time, they sort of got pushed away. You know, Rav Cook has a long essay on this where he talks about the shift from the time of Moshe 
to the Nevi'im, to the Chachamim, right? And he basically makes the point that, you know, the Chachamim had a problem because they realized that the prophets and Nevi'im were sort of so invested in the macro, big issues that are, you know, expressed, you know, in Judaism, they didn't really have a very good opportunity, didn't have a very good sense of how to integrate those ideas in the real world. And that's why he uses metaphor that the Gemara says the Chacham is a diff from a Navi, right? That a Chacham is better than Navi. How is he better than Navi? So he says he's better at getting the job done, right? That's why the Gemara, for example, has so many details, right? Because again, the, the Gemara gets the job done. It tells you how to live a Jewish life, right? But if Cook says that the ideal model is the Mosaic model, the model of Moshe, right? That Moshe is able to integrate, right? The specifics of the law within the context of the larger narrative framework. So just to sort of summarize, I, I don't think my approach is really innovative. I think it's deeply traditional. I think, again, there are times in Jewish history for a lot of reasons where different models are advocated over others. But I think, again, that if you really think carefully about what we're trying to accomplish in the 21st century needs of the students, I think having an approach which is heavily invested with personal growth is probably ideal educationally and also ideal religiously. For you personally, uh, when you're thinking about sort of the approach that you're going to take with regard to, you know, building up your, your own uh, I suppose ethical character, um, do you default to more of a Slobodka model of, uh, you know, the, the grandeur of, 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 of man, or do you default more to the Navardak of, uh, you know, the, um, the lowliness of man? Or do you think there's like a time and a place for each or do you have a, a whole different approach? Like where, where do you think your, right. where does your character lie in terms of what speaks most to you? I mean, I'm definitely um, more in the sort of uh, Slobodka school of thought. I actually have an ancestral connection to Slobodka, so it's in the blood. But, uh, but beyond that, you know, I honestly think that, um, especially for sort of modern Jews, right, in terms of their experience of the world, I think that autonomy is so central. It's like a podcast in and of itself, right? But I think that, the model of Slobodka, which talks the language of the Gadlut Adam, the greatness of man, is the model which you know really ad- really advocates um, and legitimate and legitimizes uh, human autonomy, right? And I think that that's a model which I think is you know religiously valuable. I think it really speaks to the experience of modernity, right? That we don't perceive ourselves as lowly, right? We perceive ourselves as really you know people who have great you know potential, and therefore I think a model which says you know what you do have great potential, but it has to be channeled. Right. And it has to be worked on. It's not something which is a given. Right. I think it's a model that I think is really an honest assessment of the contemporary condition. Right. I mean, just think about it. You know, you have all these incredible opportunities technologically, professionally, economically. But it's an incredible exercise to say, you know what, I have all these things. Right. I have all this opportunity. I am great in terms of potential. But in order to really sort of um, work on these things in a meaningful way, it requires work. It's a practice. Right. And that practice in and of itself Right, will get me to the place where I theoretically could be. Right, and jumping around a bit. Um, so, if we approach um, halacha as this integrated model that you know halacha leads us to become more ethical, more more virtuous, is there not a risk um, that you know you could start? looking too deeply at the the tame hamitzvah start looking too deeply at you know what value am i going to get out of this mitzvah um you know i'm feeling pretty like i'm, I'm feeling pretty good today i'm f- feeling pretty you know pretty humble right. um you know i don't need to work on my humility today or this week i'm going to start working on something else and you know uh, is there a risk right. that people that that could lead to 
you know, not keeping mitzvah Latama for like for their for their own sake, right. but rather. Well, that is sort of the million dollar question, right? And I think I appreciate you asking it. I mean, I, I, the way I like to think about that is that, you know, I'm not suggesting, and this really this is not the view of the Rambam and other sort of classical uh, thinkers who advocated this approach that you perform the mitzvah with you, you, a utilitarian goal in mind. In other words, you don't perform the mitzvah for the rationale, right? You perform the mitzvah independently of the rationale. But at the end of the day, you do believe that the purpose of engaging those mitzvot is because you think that by doing them, you become somebody better, right? And therefore, it's not negotiable in a certain sense whether you should perform the mitzvot that's sort of not on the table. But the goal of ritual observance is not only the performance, right? But it's to try to actually become transformed by the mitzvot themselves. And therefore, the way I like to think about this is that it's true that you know, we want to look for the rationales, but there's also virtue in acknowledging that we don't know everything. So in a certain sense, having what, you know, some people call the ethic of submission, right, which assumes that you submit to halacha, right, even if you don't understand it, is in of itself a virtue. Why? Because it teaches you that you are not sort of the center of the universe, right, that halacha is about you, but it's not all about you. And therefore, what it's trying to do is allow you to move beyond yourself, right? And the way it allows you to move beyond yourself is by having all these rules that make you more godly. But it also says, you know what? Even if you don't understand a rule, right, you still have to perform it. Why? Because at the end of the day, the system is bigger than you, right? The Rambam says that even if we try to understand the Tamayim, it's so we never fully understand it in its totality, right? And therefore, the infinite nature of the mitzvah implies that I'll never fully grasp it, right? And that's sort of the self-transcendent dimension uh, religious observance, which is, yeah, I want to become better, but part of me becoming better is realizing it's not all about me. Like to work with your model, if you assume, you know, I, I really understand the virtues of Tefillin, I got it, I'm ready to move on, right? What you're basically saying is the system is about me, right? And therefore, if I've sort of achieved the utility, I no longer have to comply any further. And I think the real goal of the system is to teach you that it is about you, right? But again, part of being the best you is realizing there's more to the world than you, right? That may sound a little uh, complicated, but the core idea basically is that, you know, religious life is about you, but again, not entirely about you. And that in of itself is virtuous. Um, so I really like this idea you mentioned in terms of the idea of an ethic of submission. Um, and uh, one one kind of thought that was just coming to mind when you were talking earlier is this about Tameh and Mitzvot is how sort of like the idea of a chok or chukim like fit into this. Um, so would you say like those Mitzvot that, you know, we don't know the reason for, they fit into that category of, of you know, a virtue of, of submission, or is there more to chukim than than just that? Well, this is a big debate, right? In other words, why is it that we don't understand chukim, right? The Rambam thinks, for example, that the reason why we don't understand chukim is because we simply don't know enough about the ancient Near East, right? The Rambam, the Moruchim, says that if I know more about the ancient Near East, the more I'll understand the world of chukim, which assumes that basically there are reasons for chukim, right? Chukim are not, you know, not are not irrational. Right? There are reasons; I just don't know the reason. Okay, but I like to think about it basically is, is that we want to minimize the submission model, meaning if you had to think in terms of percentages, right, I think much of contemporary halakhic discourse is like 90% submission, like 10% meaning, right, and I would flip it, right? I want to say like it's 90%, 95%, 98% meaning, virtue, personal betterment, and a small fraction of submission, the submission is critical, why, because the submission reminds you, right, at the end of the day, Right? There are some chokim, even if there's only one chok you don't know, right? That one chok that you don't know, right, in many ways colors the entire experience. And it reminds you that you may be able 
to achieve knowledge of 99.9% of the mitzvot. But there'll always be one that will be ambiguous to you. And that ambiguity reminds you that the system is beyond you, right? That again, there's an element which you can't fully access. And that experience of humility and acknowledging that is part of what halakhic living is all about. Right? And I think it's exactly in that moment that you say to yourself, you know what? I really become somebody different, right? To use a metaphor, you know, I always tell my students, it's like, let's say, for example, you know, your parents tell you, there are all these rules in the house and they all make sense, right? There's one rule that you struggle with, you know, like everybody when they're younger struggles, like your parents say to you, you have to clean up for the housekeeper, right? And you always ask, well, why? Isn't the job of the housekeeper like to clean up, right? And again, you know, it bothers every teenager. Like, I don't understand why am I cleaning up for the housekeeper, right? But in that moment, when you say to your parent, even though I don't fully understand this rule, I'm going to do it, right? You make a statement. You say, you know what? I trust you. Why? The same parent who legislates all these other rules that make sense to me also legislates this rule. So to the same God who legislates all these rules that I do understand, also legislates this one rule. And in that moment, I make a statement that halacha is about my understanding, not exclusively about understanding. And therefore, I think the chok plays a very specific role in our religious lives, even though I'd want to minimize it at the times we actually invoke that principle. I think one of the things I'm finding, I, I, the integrative model, I think is fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I think the thing that I find most um i think most difficult to sort of internalize um is this this idea that you know the the mitzvah are there to tran to be transformative so just using the example you gave of, of tefillah that you know with with the shemona esrei it's to sort of go through it and each bracha or each moment that you're standing in silence and and davening is is not to have davened but to pray and through the prayer sort of transform and i'm sure like you know i'm sure we've all had um you know moments in our lives or, or to feel up um where like we've had a really you know exhausting and uplifting amida um or, or whatever it is but does that not rely first of all does it not rely too much on on the self as in it's if you're if you move away from the traditional model that sort of Musa has been taught, for example, you know, the, the marathon Musa Shmuzen of, of like Rav Chaim Shmuel Levitz or, or Rebelli Lopian or, or whoever, you know, where they'd sit and they'd, they'd talk for hour after hour and coming out that you're, where you're receiving the Musa from someone. At least there's someone there sort of to guide you through and to sort of point you in the right direction of, or, or in a direction of, of, you know, where to find the virtues. Whereas if we're saying that through tefillah or through learning or through wearing tefillin or keeping kosher, whatever it is, are we not relying to, and again, going back to what I was saying before about how there's a, a dearth of modern Orthodox Musa guidance. Do we not rely too much on, on each individual to sort of figure out for themselves, like what's the issue and how do I fix it? Okay, I mean, the way I think there's a few ways to think about that. I think first of all, um, you know, there, there are, there's a lot of literature, you know, both medieval and modern that discusses these topics, meaning it's, you're right, there aren't a zillion books that sort of address these issues, but there are books, right? So in other words, if you're looking for sort of literary guidance, there are things available. Okay, that's the first thing I would say. But the second thing I would say is that it alludes to a question you referenced earlier, which is, you know, part of the work of personal betterment is to take responsibility for your religious life. Right. That it's easier in a certain sense to sort of just download data and then sort of work with that. But I think and I'm, not, I'm by no means being critical of classical approaches. Again, I, I'm not by any means a scholar of of Musser, nor am I a historian of like, you know, Musser, you know, uh, ideology or theology. 
But I think that what I'm advocating basically is a model which assumes that, yeah, it, it does require a lot of work to not only, you know, learn the mechanics of halakhic living, of religious life, but also to ask what are the virtues, how they express themselves, you know, what's a legitimate virtue? You know, that's sort of the, another question. In other words, what makes a tam hamitzvah legitimate? Does, any, does anything go? Like, what are the rules? I mean, those are tough questions. But at the end of the day, if you, if you want to get the job done, you got to do hard work, right? So in other words, if you really want, you know, to sort of experience religion in a way that I think the Torah intended, well, yeah, that, that does require a lot of work. And I think that... Um, it may be easier and it may be sort of uh, more sort of convenient, just sort of like and work with a Muslim model that says, you know, I'm gonna have my 30 minute Muslim Seder and then move on. But again, I think a more integrated approach, it makes a demand throughout the day and really asks the student you know, the tough religious questions, not every day, all day. Again, just to clarify, I'm not advocating like turning the entire day into like one big Muslim schmooze about how the laws of Tochen, you know, make you a nicer person. That's nearly not my goal here. But I'm saying that in general, just as an orientation in terms of asking students, the core religious questions um, throughout the day and as part of the curriculum, as part of the conversation, I think is really valuable. Look, in Israel, it's much more pronounced. I mean, you had scholars like Rosh Shagar, and today you have Rav Yaakov McGain and Rav Brandis and other people who are talking about some of these questions, particularly in terms of how to integrate questions of why and meaning in the learning of Gemara. It's just sort of like one strategy, right? But I think in general, this is very much sort of a, a work that you know people are still trying to think through and think how to integrate. I think the approaches, or sort of the core approaches, are traditional, but I think how we integrate them reflects the needs of 20th century and 21st century education. You mentioned that your this integrative approach and the approach that you're advocating for sure. uh, is really really based in the Rambam. Um, that the the overall sort of the, the meta reason for the mitzvah is to um, encourage a virtuous ethical existence. Um, but then, how do we how do how do we then deal with the thinkers, the philosophers, the Rishon and the Acharnim who, who talk about how the mitzvot are there to right. convene directly with, with God? It's to do ruts on Hashem. It's to do the will of God. Mm-hmm. So we, the mitzvah is not necessarily, for, it's not for our purpose. Um, or it is for our purpose, but only in the sense that it's for our purpose to be more godly, but not necessarily more ethical. And therefore, there would be a separation between um, between sort of the the Rambam approach and the integrative approach where you know learning Tanakh makes you more ethical with a different approach whereas learning Tanakh with the learning has its own value and the ethics comes from somewhere else from learning ethics right I mean look again I'm I'm certainly not claiming that you know the the approach that I'm discussing is the again the only approach right as you alluded to there are other views out there in terms of the purpose of mitzvot and the general orientation towards Torah learning Uh, my argument basically is is that I don't think as an educator, as a community, we have responsibility to sort of be able to say call a day out here. I mean, at the end of the day, right, you have to sort of advocate an approach which you believe in, which is deeply rooted in tradition, and which you think is not only religiously, but also educationally effective. So I think you're right that there are certainly are other schools of thought, particularly mystics, which think about myths observance in cosmic terms, right? And again, but I think even in that school of thought, right, there still is an assumption that mitzvot are supposed to do something to Right. And that learning is supposed to do something. You know, someone told me a story one time. They asked the prominent Rosh Yeshiva, you know, can I learn Musa during the Seder Hayom and in the Yeshiva during the traditional curriculum? And he said, all the Musa you need is in the Gemara. OK, now, again, that, that's an interesting critique. Right. Because that concedes the point. In other words, that assumes that you need to learn Musa. You need to learn work on yourself. But again, you don't need to look elsewhere external to the text. You can find it in the text. OK. So it's true that there are other approaches, and 
all those are legitimate. I don't think there's anything wrong or sort of non-traditional about the other models. But I think that from my own experience, just personally and also educationally, I think that, you know, much of contemporary uh, Jewish experience assumes that, you know, we, we want to feel as though like our religious life, that halacha and Torah life sort of does something to us, right? And we're not as connected, at least myself, I can speak personally, we're not as connected to sort of like the metaphysical model. It assumes that every mitzvah I do changes sort of the spiritual framework of the world. If that works for you, great. I don't, I'm not, my goal is not to missionize here and make turn everybody onto the approach I'm talking about. I'm simply saying, I think this is a legitimate approach. It's an approach which unfortunately I think is not sufficiently addressed in the contemporary Orthodox community. And I think it's, an, it's a compelling model to have in addition. doesn't mean it has to be the only model, but I think it's a model which I think is not only religiously beneficial, but I think ultimately if we want to you know, keep students, both you know, adolescents and adults and lifetime learners engaged, we have to ask the question, which is how does, how are religious lives ultimately transformed, right? by our religious practices? And if the answer is they're not, well, I think we have a problem. We don't only have a problem philosophically, we have a problem educationally. And therefore, I think, again, whatever strategy you use, again, I think Musser is a loose term here, but again, whether you use, you know, whether you want to do it through Gemara, whether you want to do it through Musser text, whether you want to do it through some integrative approach, whatever it is, it's all good. But I think at the end of the day, there has to be a language which assumes that religious texts are supposed to be religious. Right? In other words, it's not the same thing as studying, you know, a text which we don't believe to be right from God. It's something different here. And therefore, that experience is supposed to make us more godly, which, again, according to the Gemara, assumes that makes us better people. So, as you say, you're not, you, you didn't come here to, to evangelize, um, but I think that's a wonderful place to stop because I'm certainly convinced. Um, if, uh, <laughs> if people do want to sort of learn more about your approach, they can do so uh, from your book, uh, Jewish Law as a Journey, available from coronapal.com. Um, and there's plenty more for us to talk about, but uh, we'll have to save it for another time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was really great. We are delighted to be joined by Rabbinit Shana Goldberg. Rabbinit Goldberg teaches Israeli and American students in the Bet Midrash and Hashim Migdal Oz, an affiliate of Yeshiva Haratzion. She is a Yoetzer Halacha and a contributing editor for Drachecha, Women Amitzmot.org. And you can also find her blog on the Times of Israel. Rabbinit Goldberg, great to have you with us on the Quran Podcast. Thank you. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be here. And uh, especially because I think that Cohen is doing such great educational work. Uh, and talking of uh, different educational opportunities, obviously with, from your backgrounds working in Mayanot um, and Migdalos, um, in modern Orthodox high schools, yeshiva and midrashot today, uh, what are the learning priorities and what do you think the learning priorities should be? Okay, such an important question that I think all of us are thinking about and dealing with all the time. I like to think about learning priorities in two realms. There's the educational realm in the sense of transmitting knowledge we want our children and our students to be literate. We want them to feel like they're insiders, that they're comfortable in their environments, that they could open up a text, they could open up a safer, and they at least can know where to turn to when they are looking for information. Uh, but on another level, I think uh, maybe a deeper and more important part of education is less the literate part of it and more the emotional part of what it means to 
develop into a religious uh, persona, what it means to have a religious identity. And when I think about that, I think the issues that many of us are dealing with today, both as parents and as educators, and also for ourselves, is um, how do we raise a generation of of children and students and how do we ourselves be people who are both committed and at the same time feel connected. Somebody could feel very committed and not feel connected. They could feel connected but not be fully committed. In Hebrew, they discuss the struggle as mechuyavut versus mechubarut. And I think a real priority that I see on every level, on the elementary school level, the high school level, the post high school Shana Bharat programs and beyond is how do we cultivate religious personas that are both committed and also connected. And part of that I think is helping students appreciate and realize what it means to live an integrated life, what it means to uh, be a person who doesn't see themselves as orthodox except when they take breaks to do whatever things you know are kind of secular but how even in their secular lives they bring uh, their religious identity into every part of that into every realm of that I think uh, it sounds heavy sometimes and I discuss this with students they're like but but always, always, you know, even when I'm watching TV or even when I'm choosing my music or even when I'm picking up a book or talking to friends or whatever it may be, like always that Avodah Hashem is always supposed to be there. And I think that integrated life of living an intentional life, living a meaningful life, even though it may feel heavy at times, is at the end of the day uh, what keeps people feeling connected and committed when they feel that orthodoxy and their religion is not just something that is on the side or part you know, of their lives, but it is defining to every aspect of their existence. Okay, I feel uh, we may have sort of uh, walked almost all the way up to the, the answer to this question already, but uh, why then is is the study of, of Musa and self-improvement um, an important part of the broader uh, concept of Talmud Torah? Right. Okay. So I think, you know, that directly connects to this because, you know, Talmud Torah has both that educational text part and it also has the broader emotional part. But uh, we have a long tradition of the two being very, very intimately connected. There's a Gemara in uh, Masacha Brachot that tells us that the purpose of Chachma, the goal of any wisdom that we acquire at the end of the day is for us to feel closer to God and to work on our deeds. And I think we speak often about how the learning that we do is for the purpose of bringing it uh, to expression, bringing it to action. And I think even more than bringing it to action, we have a lot of sources that speak about the intimate connection between the two of them. There's uh, Avot Rabbi Natan tells us that somebody who is a chacham, but he's not a yarei he doesn't have fear of sin, what can you compare it to? And he says you can compare him to an uman, the ain klium adult, an artist who, who has so much talent and so much potential, but he doesn't have anything to work with. He doesn't have the paints he needs. He doesn't have the paintbrushes that he needs. There's so much potential there, and yet he can't express it if he has the wisdom, but he doesn't have the natural uh, feeling and connection to his creator. Sometimes I think about this uh, uh, in a more modern day muscle of like me, you know, with a brand new iPhone where there's so much potential in that iPhone and yet all I know how to use is the email, the phone, the WhatsApp and the, the camera. You know, there's so much there, but if you if you don't have the ability to access it because you don't have the kelim that you need, you don't have the utensils that you need, so then what, what 
good does that do? Um, there's other sources that tell us that uh, somebody who has wisdom, but he doesn't know how to act on it. He's like somebody who has the inner keys to the most sacred chamber to the safe, but he doesn't have the key to the front door, meaning he can't come close to where he wants to go. And my most favorite mashal about this connection is the mashal that's brought down in Perkei Avot, that somebody who acquires a lot, a lot of wisdom He's compared to a tree who has the most beautiful branches that are so expansive and everybody takes note of them. And yet, if he doesn't have the mass and two of him, if he hasn't worked on his character, if he hasn't developed himself, so then he has uh, very shallow roots. And if a, even a small wind will come, it says the wind will, will blow him over and, and, and turn the tree on its side because he doesn't have the roots that are really uh, stabilizing the force of the enormous branches that uh, he's grown. And I think when I think about why is Nisar so necessary as a part of Talmud Torah, it's like a correlation that we always need to keep in mind that the more somebody learns, Zafka, the more somebody learns, the more they develop their intellectual uh, side, the more knowledge that they acquire, they have to always make sure that their mass and children, their character development is outpacing the, um, the, uh, the attainment or the knowledge that they have. Otherwise, they're going to be like a tree that's unstable and could easily be toppled over. So I think when we think about why is Masar so important, it's because the uh, we, we've been told many times over throughout our tradition that Torah by itself uh, is not the end goal. Torah, the purpose of Torah, Tachlit of Chachma, the purpose of Chachma is Masim Tovim, and Musar is the way that we get there. So when it comes to developing those character traits um, and, and growing those roots, um, is it, do you think there's a value to studying specific Musa, Svarim, Musa texts? Or can we get those messages and those traits and ideas from learning Tanakh or Halakha? I think that there's so much that we could glean from Tanakh and Halakha. I teach a course in Migdalos called Nashim Tanakh, And in each class, we really delve into uh, an analysis using the sources and the Mepharshim and all different kinds of tools to really try to build a picture of each woman and who she was and what she did and the stories that the Tanakh brings about her. And at the same time, we always come out with such rich um, messages that we could take away for ourselves. And you talk about Sarah and you see how she managed to know when to accept a situation for what it is, you know, when to, let's say, give over Hagar to Abraham and accept that this was kind of her lot in life and not to complain. And at the same time, when things weren't working out with Ishmael and Yitzhak, so then she took action, you know, knowing how to make good decisions. Or you look at Rivka and you see her determination and you look at the story of Rachel and Leah we learn so much about jealousy and competition. And at the same time, sisters who, despite all that, loved each other deeply and wanted to give so much to each other. So I think there's always so much opportunity throughout our study of Tanakh and Halakha to uh, look for uh, messages and values that we could take away. I guess in Halakha, I'm a teacher mostly of Halakha, and a big value that I always find there that pops up all over the place is the concept of Kavod Habriyot Ochedra Banan, that even though we so value uh, Dravanan and Rabbinic law, 
and following halakha, you know, down to the details, the prati pratim the Rabbanim give us. At the same time, halakha understands that respect for human beings and the way that we treat them is so, so, so important. And therefore, there's flexibility that's built into the halakhic system about how important it is to treat people uh, appropriately. So there's so much that we could take away from Tanakh and halakha. And I think, you know, uh, Educators are especially good at making those gestures, or I don't even have to go that far. Um, my husband and I, when we, uh, when he was in medical school at Penn, we always used to smile that every Dvar Torah that was given, you know, over Shabbat would always end here at Penn. You know, we too can, or whatever camp you go to, whatever seminary you're in, they could take anything in Tanakh or Halakha and say. So too, we hear, you know, and bring out the message. And I think that's something that's so amazing about our sources. And at the same time, I'm not sure that there's a supplement for direct engagement um, in Musar, just because the energy level or the focus that you're going to have when you're studying or when you're thinking about character development directly is going to be a little bit different when it's coming uh, straight out of, you know, safer, like or the full range than it is when you are studying, you know, Tanakh, maybe for the purpose of the analysis, and then at the same time looking to take away a message. So I want to say that uh, somebody who's looking to work on their character, and I think we all are, to make ourselves, you know, the best that we could be, and to at least strive to always be trying, at least to uh, develop ourselves in any way that we can, can take those messages uh, from wherever they find them. And at the same time, there are times where you want to focus more specifically and more intently on one specific aspect. And in that case, uh, you know, Musar Sefer has so much to offer us. Um, what role do you think Mashkichim uh, or Mashkichot, community Rabbanim, uh, you know, whatever, sort of religious leaders, teachers, uh, what role do, do they play in you know, the personal character development building? A great question, uh, one that I think a lot, a lot about, um, both in the different roles that I play and also as the daughter of a rabbi and a rabbitin who uh, really faithfully served their community for 45 years and I think thought a lot about how best to guide people to a enriched life of Abodot Hashem and fulfillment uh, in their religious lives. I think that the first thing is for anyone in a, any kind of educational position to um, feel like they are working together, whether it's their children or their students or their congregants, that uh, they're not above them, they're not preaching to them, they don't have all the answers to understand that at the end of the day, the best growth comes from within. It's about helping people figure out where they want to be, what they want from themselves, and finding that the best they have in themselves and, and bringing it out. I find that the ability for anybody to speak openly, to share, to kind of, um, you know, obviously when you're teaching students, you're not uh, at the same level in terms of, you know, not the same age or you have years of experience, but the struggles are the same. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Um, I find that when I'm talking, whether it's to my children or my students about any issue that's on their minds, I always find that, you know, they think that maybe you've mastered it or you don't have those feelings or you're above that. And the ability to share and to 
um, be honest and open, I think is so helpful when you're in the role of a mashkicha or of any kind of uh, educator or leader, because it makes people realize that we're all in this together and we could all work on this together. And, um, you know, she could do it or he could do it or he's struggling or she's struggling and I'm also struggling. So then that means that there's also uh, maybe a chance that we could progress a little bit. So I think that's the first and most important thing to not hold yourself uh, above and to really kind of be there in the trenches um, and be honest and be real about it. But I also think that there are specific messages of growth that could be really helpful um for for people to be aware of and one is that growth is slow and steady you know it, it's fun sometimes to like to rush ahead and to do something that's really exciting and that seems really monumental and and life-changing and yet growth real growth i find happens um slowly each point where we are tackling kind of the next challenge that stands in front of us. Rav Dessler and Milta who talks about this as the Bechira point, that every person, no matter where they are, kind of on that battlefield or on the ladder, they're always facing the next challenge. And they may have a lot of things that are, you know, far ahead of them. And yet all that matters right now is like the next moral struggle, the next battle, the next challenge that stands before them and how they're going to move forward with that and if we're able to focus just on that instead of being overwhelmed by kind of the miles to go that we have before we sleep then it makes it much more uh, doable and something that we could actually achieve so i think that idea that it's slow and steady and it doesn't have to be measured by huge monumental uh, life-changing earth-shattering uh, things uh, is is really um, something that gives people the, the koach, the energy to feel like maybe they can take those baby steps. And I think another thing that's really important to me um, in the role of a mashkicha is the emphasis on the fact that growth is deep, which means it's not deep in the sense that it's not something that everybody else always sees and is aware of. Right? The person that's davening the longest in shul or that answers Kaddish with the loudest Yehishmi Rabbah or the girl that's sitting in the Beit Midrash until 1 a.m. or the person who changed their wardrobe overnight. It's not necessarily a sign of uh, the deepest growth. Sometimes it's change that, you know, um, is apparent to everybody doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be long lasting. And I think that's something that all of us struggle with because sometimes it's even like affirming for ourselves to feel like the change is very obvious. But if we go back to that mashah that we spoke about earlier, about uh, the trees and the branches and the roots, I think there's a reason that in the mashal, the the chachma is compared to branches because it's something that everybody sees. You walk by a tree, you see how beautiful it is, you see how huge the branches are, you see how tall it is, you see how many flowers or how many fruit are on it. And you know, it's like the, the person who um, is up and learning and everybody sees them. So they have these beautiful branches, except you have no idea what their roots look like. And the roots, which are things that are 
on a tree, they're underground, meaning nobody sees them, nobody knows what they're like, but the roots in the Mishnah are compared to Masim Tovim. Those Masim Tovim, those quiet acts of chesed, or those quiet, you know, little changes that you make step by step that somebody else may not even notice, but to you uh, is really, really, really uh, significant, or you know how hard you work to get there, those are the things that in the end are going to uh, give you the stability to develop um, your religious identity and your your personality as an Uvedar and Uvedar Hashem in a way that we hope uh, will last a lifetime. So I think that those messages um, coming kind of from people who are in the role of leadership, because sometimes when you have uh, students or congregants are looking at leaders and they're kind of waiting for those huge messages of inspiration that's going to knock their socks off. And when the leader is able to get up and tell them, no, it's about the little things. It's the little things. It's the way that you talk to your spouse and it's the patience that you have for your children. And it's the extra minute of kavana that you put into your davening or it's a little bit more of tzedakah that you gave. Or it's the little things that no one else in the world may know about. Those are the things that in the end are going to make you into the best person, the person that you want to be. I think the role of mashkicha um, or again anyone in education is to, is to guide people towards that, guide people towards appreciating and acknowledging how uh, important those small steps are. Um, so you looked a bit at, at role models as a way of sort of learning Musa. Um, and you mentioned before when we were talking about sort of the different places to learn Musa from, you mentioned you know, that, yes, we can learn from Allah and Tanakh, but there's also definitely an importance of learning like the classic uh, Musa Sfarim as well. Um, how, whether it's role models, whether it's Sfarim, how might the study of Musa be approached in, let's say, a community setting, in a high school uh, or a midrashah yeshiva? So Musar is, uh, you know, as a discipline, uh, we don't see it studied maybe in the modern Orthodox community in the same way that we study Tanakh or the way that we study Halakha. And I, I, I've been thinking a lot about why that's so. You know, even when I hear uh, in my formal role at Migdaluz, but when I hear the word Musar, it's still something about it rubs me the wrong way. And I think that maybe it's because when we think about Musar, you think about that fire and brimstone speech where, you know, you're kind of sitting there shrinking slowly in your seat and feeling worse and worse about yourself and guilty. And um, that guilt, I don't think, is what maybe it motivates people in the moment, that fear. It's very good at in the moment, kind of getting you to jump up and swear that you're going to change your whole life tomorrow. Um, but in the long run, it's deflating. It leaves us feeling down about ourselves. It's not empowering. And I think sometimes when we think about Musar, we think about somebody kind of talking down to us or making us feel bad about ourselves. And I think that the shift that we've seen over time, at least in our community, is not less of an emphasis on Musar or let's call it character development, right? Or, or, or working on our traits and our midot and on who we are, but maybe realizing that it has to, at the end of the day, be something that comes from within. And if it's something that comes from within, um, the power of it will be much stronger. So I think, let's say, on a high school level, when I taught in my node and we were trying to think a lot about 
again, how to uh, inspire commitment, but also connection. So we began to um, run these panels. We took difficult topics that people struggled with. Uh, let's say, um, you know, in the girls' high school, it was a big one, but relationships, all different kinds of things. And instead of, you know, giving that inspiring talk that also leaves people feeling a little bit uncomfortable, we asked the girls just submit questions that they had and anything and everything was on the table. And then teachers, we had a group of diverse teachers, not only Judaic teachers, but also teachers who uh, taught secular studies, answering the questions um, in, again, an honest and open way that allowed the students to feel like we're all in this together. These things are on our minds also. These questions that you have are questions that we're also dealing with, but they're, they're, they were their questions. They're not the questions that we wanted them to ask. They, we answered their questions. When it's coming from them, I think that makes all the difference. On uh, Shana Ba'aret's level, something that my husband and I uh, were involved in for many years at Yeshiva Hartsiel, we live in a Lunchford, and my husband was informally involved at the Yeshiva. Uh, we ran a Maservad together. It was called a Maservad, but um, it wasn't sitting and studying texts of classic Mr. Sparim, but every week we had a group of um, a bunch of Shana Aleph and Shana Bet guys, and sometimes even some post-college guys would come, and they themselves would, the week before, vote on the topic they, they wanted to discuss. It could be anger, it could be jealousy, it could be laziness, it could be patience. They suggested the topics, they voted on it, and then whosever topic uh, got the most votes, when they came and presented, the rule was no sources, no sources whatsoever. Talk from your heart. You, you wanted to talk about anger. Tell us, what, what do you struggle with? What's, what, what do you think the challenge is with anger? And what do you think are some ways that um, we may be able to work on it a little bit or in, improve our ability to manage and control our anger? And what was fascinating is that my husband and I just served as moderators, the boys did most of the speaking. And the minute that you tell people you can't kind of hide behind the text or quote the Rambam or quote Matil Yeshara, not that those texts aren't amazing and meaningful and wonderful, but sometimes they kind of serve as a cover for us thinking about what it is that I struggle with myself, not what is someone else telling me is the challenge. The minute that you peeled away all those layers, the ability to, for 18 and 18 year old boys, especially to talk about their feelings and to talk about what was um, their experience with these midod, uh, it was a fascinating thing to see how that ability to kind of touch on what was really going on enabled them or gave them the, their own kilim. We didn't say it, you know, at the end they would say, wow, that was so helpful. We didn't say anything. We, you, you guys said it all yourself. Um, and we, uh, Judah and I would come away so inspired each week. And at the end of each uh, session, we would pick something to work on specifically, like as a group that week connected to that Nida, uh, but I think the fact that it came from them is what made all the difference. And I also see that in the Galus, um, the classes, you know, when we talk about topics that are more Musar related, um, I try to make them as discussion oriented as possible so that you know, the young women, they are the ones who are raising the ideas and they're thinking about it. And I think on a community level, we see more and more and more initiatives like that, especially today in the age of uh, social media and interaction and WhatsApp groups, that the more you could get people involved and the more uh, the questions and the issues and the struggles are coming from within, I think the more 
the more people feel touched, the more it feels relevant, the more they feel engaged, and the more um, practical and concrete it becomes in their lives. So I think, again, I'm all for all the misers farim, and they've served us well for generations, and there's so, so much, um, there's so much wisdom in them, and yet the ability to kind of take that and back to the issue of connection in today's generation, to take those ideas and find a way for today's generation to connect to them is where the challenge is. And I think empowering people that they have the tools that they just sit down and think about and concentrate and, you know, and, and really want it, they could reach that. I think that's where, um, at least, in, 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 you know, um, that, that's, where, that's where I feel, uh, you know, exciting work is happening today. Um, can you think of one one piece of, of advice or something that you've heard or even an example from one of these these Musa Vad, um, you know, that that's really sort of spoken to you uh, and you now try and share that with others? Like some like the the one key if I mean if you can, one one key thing you sort of really try and pass on to all your students. Um I, I said earlier that my parents um the biggest influence in my life and so much of who I am I think uh, was formed kind of growing up in their home Mm -hmm. and a lot of what I got from my parents they didn't necessarily put it into the words that I'm going to put into now it was just the life that they lived and through that over time maybe I've concretized that things, the values that I got from their home into specific uh, sound bites that I try to pass on to my students. But uh, they'll laugh if they hear this because they know, you know, Shana's seen things and she repeats over and over and over. But I think the first part of it is our ability to be very real and very honest with ourselves. Anyone who knows my mother, like Abby Lerner, she's, she's just so real and so honest. People are always like, well, you're a revitin. You're just so honest and real, but that's what makes her um, so endearing to people and people connect to her. And I think it's a trait that all of us benefit from the ability to be honest with ourselves, to be real with ourselves, to um, not pretend that we're something that we're not, I think is the first step to any uh, any character development. You can't develop your character unless you know uh, who you are and where you're at. So uh, being honest with ourselves and once we're honest with ourselves, being able to make decisions that are good for us, being able to think about, as I said earlier, like what's the best next decision? What's, where do I want to go from here? What's the, what's the next decision that I have to make and how can I make it? in the best way possible. And a big part of that is making decisions from a place of trust and not from fear. A lot of what we do sometimes in life is out of fear. What will people think of ourselves? What what does this mean about me? Will I miss out on something? All kinds of fears that that fill us. And when we're able to kind of cut through all that and think about, but but what do I really want? What do I want for myself? And, and make that decision from a place of trust, I think that that uh, helps us move to the next place. And then the ability to uh, own our decisions, 
and take responsibility for them is so huge. And I guess I'll share a practical example that I think about often. Again, I teach in the Shanaba Arts program. So one of the questions, you know, or one of the, the challenges that comes up a lot that is not at all limited to Shanaba Arts program, I think it's something we all deal with and struggle with in our, in our own homes, ourselves and our children. You know, as a young woman who will come and say, um, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, I really, 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 I want to dive in and I want to get up to dive or I want to dive with a minion or dive, whatever, whatever you know it is that she wants to do. But I just find that like it's not happening. Like I'm just staying in bed, you know. And she's saying over and over, but I really want to dive and I really want to dive and that's what I want to do. Now when I say to her, but at the moment that your alarm goes off, do you want to dive in or do you want to stay in bed? So if you can't be honest with yourself and first say, uh, all right, I guess you're right. Like at that moment, I want to stay in bed. You know, then every day she's like, wait, how, how is it that again? Like, I just didn't get up again. I didn't get up. And it's like, because first you have to be honest with yourself and say, listen, when that alarm goes off at seven o'clock, I want to stay in bed. Let's just be honest. Maybe I wish I was someone else. Maybe I wish I, you know, had different material and different inclinations, but this is who I am. I want to stay in bed. Once you're honest with yourself, then you can make good decisions. Then you could say, okay, you know what? At that moment, I want to stay in bed, but really be good to like, I want to be the kind of person who dives every day. So I'm going to set five alarms or I'm going to get a friend to pull me out of bed or I'm going to make some kind of incentive system where I reward myself, whatever it takes. But I think if you can't be honest about where you're at, then you can't really deal with the struggle uh, that is before you. Once you're honest, then you can make a decision to kind of move you to make that, you know, next uh to make that best next decision to figure out where you want to go from there. But then you also have to be ready to uh, own your decisions and take responsibility for them. You know, if somebody says, uh, I, I stayed in bed and I don't know how that happened. If, you know, but what, what do you mean you don't know how that happened? You hit this news, this news button and you decided to stay in bed. A lot of times I think we talk about ourselves as if things just happen. And if we're not ready to take responsibility and say, wait, I know why that happened. You know, it happened because of X. It happened because of Y. It happened because I decided to do this. Or 10 steps back, I made this decision and that led me in that direction. And I knew when I made that decision that that may happen. If we can own our decisions and take responsibility for them, then it's really, really hard to move forward in terms of self-improvement and growth. So I think if there's one thing that I tell my students, and they always say that, and this has nothing to do with halacha, I would say this to anyone in the world. I think it's part of being a mature, developed adult, which is that be honest with yourself and make good decisions and take responsibility for them. I think um, as people who want to be the best people that we could be, that is uh, advice that I try, you know, um, very much in my in my in my own life to to live by, and definitely talk to my kids a lot about. I find that again, sometimes you know, honesty means admitting that we're not exactly where we want to be, but then I can make the best next decision and figure out where to go from there. Uh, given that you mentioned trust in decision making, um, maybe as a scoop for the Corin podcast, um, obviously we're very excited that hopefully next year in 2021 we're going to be publishing your book, uh, which touches on this exact topic of uh, having trusting your decisions. Um, and you mentioned before in terms of Musa in the modern Orthodox community, um, 
And I think that's something that's almost like a disinclination towards it. And um, I think that's something that we find in a lot of, let's say, Sfarim that come out of the modern Orthodox community, that they're focusing on Halacha and Tanakh and Machshava. So what was it that made you decide to write your book on this particular topic, which does relate towards personal development and growth? It's funny that you say that because I know, you know, people know me in different contexts. So there are people that know me from my days uh, in GPATS, which is the graduate program of advanced music studies that is uh, run out of Yeshiva University. And they know me as, you know, that girl that learned Gemara back in college and, and, uh, and graduate school. There, there's people that know me as a U.S. and Halacha and know, you know, that I studied uh, in Mishmat's program and serious program in terms of Halacha study and involved with that. And then they hear that I wrote a book that's basically about self-growth and they're like, oh, so surprising like I didn't know that that's you and that's what you do I thought of you as like this you know intellectual text uh, text-based person and this is just not what I thought um but the truth is that anyone who really knows me knows that I guess what I love most and what I spend most of my uh, time doing is just talking to people and uh, engaging in relationships it's actually part of what drove me to become a U.S. and halacha not only the textual learning, which from an early age, I, I was inspired and engaged by serious learning of halachic text. And yet what appealed to me about the role of the U.S. halacha was the relationship aspects of it and the fact that not only are you answering halachic questions, uh, you know, that, that for me specifically, that wasn't the motivation to kind of like reach a new place in terms of women's involvement. I was happy to, but for me, the motivation was more the ability to just engage with people and develop relationships. And in my role as a U.S. halacha in America, which works kind of different than it does in Israel, where there's a hotline, it's anonymous, but I worked in the context of specific communities and shuls where I had very uh, personal relationships with women who I was surprised in the beginning thought would want to remain anonymous, but not only did they not want to remain anonymous, they wanted me to remember their specific question that they had asked 10 months ago and exactly where they're at, and they very much wanted that relationship. And when I came to Migdaluz, um, in terms of the role that I kind of slowly developed over time there, I, I realized that what I enjoy most is talking to people. Um, again, the Gove Nine about where they're at and where I'm at and things going on in our lives. And over time, a lot, a lot of conversations I realized revolved around decisions that uh, confront people in their lives. So when I'm talking to a 19 you know, year old, young woman, it may be, should she make Aliyah next year or what college to go to, or does she want to go to the army or she's dating someone, should she break up with him? But I began to notice that these decision-making questions uh, obviously don't only remain in the realm of uh, 19 year olds, but they're things that sometimes adult peers of mine would talk to me about, you know, different job opportunities. Should they leave one job for another job or should they uh, spend money on a specific thing or, or save that money for something that may come up later in time or cases that I dealt with over the years of people considering divorce. And realized, wow, there's a common element that seems to be running, um, I guess, behind the scenes of a lot of the conversations 
that I was having, which are people who are struggling with how to make good decisions. And I never ever wanted to be in the position of telling people what to do. Uh, I don't want the response, talk about take responsibility. I would never want to take responsibility for someone else's decisions. And also I believe deeply in personal autonomy, uh, very deeply in that. Years ago, uh, my husband Jude and I actually wrote an article about even on a halachic level, like it's so important for halachic questions to be handled and answered in a way that gives people their autonomy in terms of understanding the situation and making, you know, the end of day decision about how they want to handle something. Um, and yet when, you know, a person uh, is sitting before you and they're asking you where to go from there, can't kind of walk away and um, leave them empty handed. And what I, I found myself coming back to over and over and over were these principles of trust and fear that I found very much played out in our own lives. And when I would turn to a student or to a friend or a child or whoever it may be and say, but what, what do you really want? You know, a girl sits down and she says to you, like, I have no idea. Do I want to make Aliyah? Do I want to go back to America? And she tells you she has absolutely no idea. And then the first question that I usually just ask naturally is like, so, but like, what do you think you want or what do you really want? And then you would think that the person would respond, I just told you I have no idea. And yet oftentimes someone will say something like, you know, a girl will say to me, I don't know, like I always thought I wanted to make Aliyah since 10th grade. I've been telling everybody that that's what I'm going to do after my Shana Ba'aret. But, you know, and it becomes very clear pretty quickly that something in her right now doesn't really want to do that. So even though a minute ago she told you that she has no idea what she wants, um, often deep down people know what they want and then there's all these fears. What's everybody going to think of me? Or I want to make Aliyah if I go back to America. Maybe I'll never meet the back here. Or um, what does this mean? Maybe I'm not really a Zionist if I don't want to make Aliyah. And the minute that, you know, I'm kind of... Um, people become aware that there's what they want versus the fears that they're having, I find that it gives a lot, a lot, a lot of clarity. Now, sometimes clarity comes in five minutes and sometimes it takes months and months and months to figure out what it is you really want and whether or not you're willing to uh, own your decisions and take responsibility for them. I'd say somebody who's deciding to get divorced has to be ready to own that decision, take responsibility for all the consequences of that and what it will mean for them and their family and years down the line. But when they're ready to do that, despite all the fears that they may have, it often, uh, I find, is the key to uh, people being able to make good decisions. So that's kind of how the book evolved. And um, the honest truth is that for years, my husband's been pushing me to write this. And seven years ago, when I was on maternity leave, and I can't really sit still, so I kind of started dabbling in it and then put it aside. And then a series of things happened this year, just encounters, actually not with students, but with peers who just kind of turned to me about things that were in their life. And, and, and they said, I don't know what to do. And after I just shared the fear and trust thing, um, you know, the response is like, you need to write this up or this may be helpful. And at that point, I really sat down. Um, and decided to kind of take a crack at it. I know everyone's going to think this is what I did during Corona because 
I actually finished it right, right, literally the week before the pandemic uh, broke out. But uh, the the fact that the last five months have been anything but normal has uh, definitely given a lot more time to think about it and you know, work on it and edit it. Um, but that that was what really drove me. I think kind of realizing that. This has been helpful for me in my own life um, and my husband's lives and the lives of our family. And it's been helpful for uh, many students. And, and if uh, I could put it into some concrete form that could be shared with others, so then maybe I should try to do that. And um, I hope that I hope that it will do that. And I write in the book that I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a social worker, I don't have any kind of professional credentials other than life experience and, and real life conversations. And the book therefore um, actually has a lot, a lot of case scenarios. Uh, I changed details so that I don't want anyone to read the book and be like, oh, that's me. Um, although there are people that I asked specifically, so you know, their story is in there as is, and everyone else, I just changed a lot, a lot of details. But all the case scenarios in the book are based on uh, real life things that people experience and i my hope is that uh it will be um helpful or enlightening in some way to people not just uh to readers themselves who are going through decisions but i think more importantly maybe for mentors or for parents for educators for people who are in the role of guiding others in decision making because as parent who someone read it and said to me uh, he's a grandparent but he said to me as a, as a grandparent of teenage kids who are sometimes confiding in me he said this um you know i hope has given me some more healing some more tools to talk to my grandson about some of the decisions that he's facing and i think that all of us i think uh, are in that role whether as a spouse as a parent as a friend uh, to so many people in our life that it, it could be uh, in helpful in some way um, to, to someone, I think uh, I will feel that, that it was worth all the time and effort. Um, if I could ask a question that sort of hopefully brings together a few things that we've touched upon uh, in the conversation so far. Um, so we've identified that there does seem to be a, um, a reticence, certainly in the modern orthodox community, to formally sit and learn Musa, um, and you mentioned as well that your sort of your most powerful influence uh, or meaningful influence is from your parents. Um, how much do you think sort of the role of the, sort of the, the responsibility rests with parents to sit and learn Musa uh, with their kids? Um, as in, you know, we all know that it's you know the parents' responsibility to, to teach their children and to make sure they get a good secular education, a good Jewish education, and whatever, but we also, we want our kids to grow up to be moral, ethical, kind, you know, loving people. So do you think, well, how much does, does the response, it's actually something that Arya and I have discussed uh, offline, uh, we, we often talk, uh, not on the podcast, um, sort of to what extent does a parent have, should uh, sit down with their kids, perhaps even also at what, they, what age they start and sit and formally learn uh, Musa with their kids? Uh, it's interesting that you uh, brought it up now in the context of my parents because it just made me flash back to the fact that my father learned that we're four girls. I'm the oldest of uh, you know, three, uh, me and three other sisters. And when we turned 10, he started learning for each of us uh, 
like some safer for bat mitzvah. So with me, uh, we learned safer hachinach. But with the my next sisters, with one sister he learned rachot tzedikin, and with one sister he learned shari tshuva, and more musar safers. And I completely kind of forgot about that until you asked now. Um, I will say that in in my own life, um, I have not learned, and either my husband and I have not sat down and formally learned musar. Uh, sparring with my children and I'm thinking about now like if that was a conscious decision or not I don't think it was there definitely was no point of decision not to um learn a lot with my kids my husband especially and then just because time is limited I guess they chosen different things but I feel like um talk about self-growth and mido is an ongoing conversation in our house like all the time about everything i mean as much as possible not in terms of you know not in a manufactured way in a, in the real life examples of sibling rivalry and issues at school and the teacher said this and this kid did that and you know i'm angry at you ima and and and, and living living the misser and i think that maybe going back to how we started this like when i think about living an integrated life as a Torah Jew, as an Orthodox Jew, as an Ovid Hashem. I guess I could also talk about it as living an integrated Muster life that, and maybe, you know, now as I'm thinking about it, that when you learn Muster as a Sefer, um, maybe, uh, you know, on, on one hand, it could be uh, absolutely wonderful. And I think um, when I see two women, young women in Mintelos learning Muster Sefer together, I think that um, there's something so productive and fruitful that comes out of their conversation, like even more than the actual text. It's again, what they do with that text and the conversation that uh, evolves around it, which I think could definitely happen between a parent and a child. And yet maybe uh, even less so, you know, than Tanakh or, or Gemara or Rambam, would I want a child to think like, oh, you know, we have our hour or half hour where we learn Mr. and and otherwise, you know, um, I don't know, again, it's not a reticence, I'm not, I'm, I'm not against it, it certainly hasn't been a conscious decision not to, but I think that when I think really of um, working on ourselves and, and we do it, I think that the things that come up just day to day, minute to minute in a home, end up being the real, like, you know, best place for a parent to discuss and impart and inculcate and work together with their children on different traits that are so important to each of us uh, to develop. I mean, who, who knows better than our children what our weaknesses are and our faults? And, you know, I, my students sometimes when they do look, they're like, you talk like so softly. And so I'm like, oh, only my kids thought that. Like, it's very easy when I come to McDeleuze and I'm calm and I left the balagan behind for you guys to think that, you know, everything's so... Uh, I don't know, calm and serene in my home. Uh, whenever a student says to me, like, wow, it must be great to be your kids, I'm like, but really, please, like, go ask them because I think our kids, they know they know us for real. They know the real deal. And they, they know uh, all the things that we struggle with. So what better place than a home for uh, parents and children to work together on the things that they they know that they need to improve. I know uh, in my sister's home, for example, they tried every sudash sheet to 
as a family, like go around the table and talk about different midah that each of them is going to work on that coming week. And I think things like that in the family context are so powerful for kids to see that their parents are also working and struggling and, and improving step by step, little by little, all the time. You know, we like to say to our kids, like my husband will often say like, oh, like I went to Abba school, but they didn't teach me that in Abba school. I'm still working on it or I'm still improving on that or, you know, or whatever. I, I, I knew how to be an Abba up to age 16. Now you're 17. And there's things that we're always, 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 I think, uh, dealing with in real time. And there's no better, uh, I think, Mr. Workshop than that. Um, so I think we might leave it at, uh, on that point. Um, I think that, I think, especially Migdal Oz and just the general Jewish community uh, are so lucky to have educators like you, Shana, that are sort of working on both the commitment in terms of halacha and educating halacha, but also that connection as well and addressing how to feel more connected. So it's been a really great to have you on the podcast. Um, and uh, just thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be here. So uh, that's all we have time for this week on the Karen podcast. Arie, if people want to be in touch, how can they do so? You can send us an email to podcast at corinpub.com. You can find us on all social media at Corin Publishers. And feel free to give us a rate, review or like on wherever you are listening to this podcast. And you can get 10% off your next order from corinpub.com. Uh, using the promo code podcast at checkout. Make sure to add Rabbi Silverstein's book, Jewish Law as a Journey, to your cart. Until next time, this has been the Corin Podcast.